my mind is indisputable with so many witnesses. And yet, many, and I think ashamedly, would try to refute the factualness of Christ's resurrection, his coming alive again. As important as that is, that's not where I want to focus your attention today. I want to focus your attention on the ramifications of that resurrection. And as Paul calls it, the power of the resurrection. Briefly, I want to give you the context of Philippians and then we'll go to the text. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting an audience with Caesar. He, he appealed to Caesar based upon false accusations that were leveled against him in Jerusalem. He appeals to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen as well as a Jew. And so he's traveled to Rome under house, and is under house arrest there. And the, the people of Philippi, a church that he had planted in the city of Philippi, send to him uh, things for his physical needs as well as news from the church that he had planted. And they send their pastor, the greatest emissary that they could send, Epaphroditus, who visits Paul in Rome, who takes these, these necessities to him and gives him word of what is happening at the church plant in Philippi. There are problems at Philippi, no doubt. Paul speaks about those in this letter, even in this passage in chapter 3, as we've just read, that there are those who would lead the people of God astray. He calls them dogs at one point. Uh, That's an interesting phraseology, but uh, appropriate. Um, He is is given this information by Epaphroditus, and now he is writing back to them in response to this, this news that he's received. And he comes to this, the, this important section in Philippians where he talks about his own uh, righteousness, it, that it has no bearing on his own salvation. Yet he was a Jew, a, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. He had not broken the law. He had kept the law. He said he was blameless as it re- relates to the law. And yet he understands that his own righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. The scriptures teach us that because we are born in sin. We are born with the sin of Adam because we are sons and daughters of Adam. Well, uh, Paul is writing to these Philippians. He talks about uh, uh, sharing with Christ's sufferings. Uh, At this time in history, persecution of the church had not reached its zenith. It was there, but it was sporadic throughout the Roman Empire. Likely, uh, Philippi did not suffer from a a lot of of, uh, persecution at this time. And Christianity was not a popular worldview. The, The numbers of Christians at this time could be numbered in the thousands, maybe the tens of thousands. Today, it's numbered in the hundreds of millions, those who name the name of Christ. Uh, But it's not as though Christianity is any more popular in today's view, is it? At least not from the perspective of the rest of the world. Much of the world lives in darkness, the darkness of Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, communism, and secular humanism. 
And in the first century, the circumstance was much more bleak than we have it today. As I said, Christianity was numbered in the thousands and today in the millions, hundreds of millions. The Church of Jesus Christ was in its infancy, though in some respects the same could be said today. We act like infants in faith, don't we? The Church of Jesus Christ. Though persecution was taking place, as I mentioned, it was isolated. And it would become much greater in the decades following Paul's letter to the Philippians. But at the time of this writing, it was not the greatest threat to the church. There was a threat to the church that Paul addresses. He summarizes that, this greater threat in verses 18 and 19, where we read, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These people are in the church. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Brethren, this is the the irony of the church of Jesus Christ. We have to come into the church as sinners, humbled by our sin, humbled that we have offended the living God, that he might lift us up out of our sin and set our feet on a solid rock to show us what light is because we live so much in darkness that we're given to that darkness. And yet there are those who come into the church with all of the revelation that's, that's spoken of, all of the, the, uh, uh, the witness of the church being blessed by the hand of God, and yet these people remain in darkness. These people are given to their own lusts. Their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, and they have minds set on earthly things. The church has not changed much in this regard. This message to the Philippian church is an appropriate message for us as well. Many churches today have their minds on earthly things. Gay rights, feminism, cradle-to-grave state welfare, assisted suicide, etc., etc., etc. The list is endless. Calvin was right. Man's heart and mind is a factory of idols. And idolaters are in the church. Paul's warning is that these persons inhabit the church and we are to discern that their idolatry leads to destruction. And how do we do that? How do we discern that? How do we discern that maybe it's us? Maybe it's me? Maybe my idols are so great to me that I don't even perceive that I'm an idolater in the church. Paul brings a very stark contrast. His exhortation is that even in the midst of these pesky, idolatrous individuals that may be even ourselves, there is a way of living that transforms a person and transcends the darkness of Paul's age and our age. Such a life is dependent on two very important circumstances, and they are found in our text today, verse 10. Those two circumstances are that I may know him, Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection. 
that I may know him, Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection. But what does it mean to know Jesus? Brethren, our sustenance in the Christian faith, yes, in all of life, resides on knowing Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. But I want to turn our attention to these two things and give a little greater clarity to them. To know Jesus is not merely to have a cognitive understanding that Jesus was born, lived on this earth, and died, and rose again. Not just a cognitive understanding. Remember that in James chapter 2.19, James writes, You believe there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. It's highly unlikely that Paul is speaking of knowing Jesus as a mere acquaintance or even as the demons who believe and tremble. That's not what he is saying. I think it's clear from the passage that Paul is speaking of knowing him in a far more intimate way. That is to say, knowing Jesus as one's friend, as one's Lord, as one's Redeemer, as the Savior of one's soul, as the very hope of one who has eternal life. To know Jesus, as Paul describes, is to know that Jesus rules heaven and earth. For all authority has been given to him in heaven and earth, according to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. To know Jesus is to believe that he gave himself a ransom for many, as Paul describes in 1 Timothy 2, as well as in the Gospels. To know Jesus is to embrace that all of creation came into being at his command. And we find that in John's Gospel, chapter 1. And what is most important for us today, to know Jesus is to know that he rose from the dead. And not just the fact that he rose from the dead, but the implications of that fact. And that brings us to the second part of the verse, the power of the resurrection. Brethren, we should never lose sight of how profound a thought that, that, that it is that Jesus, a dead man, rose from the dead. Not only that, but to remember that he raised himself from the dead. Now, how can a dead man raise himself? Yet, in John's Gospel, chapter 10, we read these verses. Therefore, my Father loves me, Jesus is speaking, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. Brethren, this takes faith. How is it that a dead man can raise himself from the dead? And yet Jesus Christ did it. He was no mere man, for who among us can lay down our lives and then take them up again? To know Jesus is to know that he is the God-man, the incarnate Son of God, full of grace and truth. So to know Jesus is to abide in him, the only one who has the power to lay down his life and raise it up again. Truly, Jesus transcends the power of might 
in mere men. Thus to resurrect himself, he has to have a transcendent power. It is the ultimate power. Now, think about all the miracles that Christ performed while he was on earth. Changed water to wine, his first miracle at the uh, wedding feast at Canaan. He healed all kinds of people, lepers, blind people, uh, a woman whose flow had been flowing for over a decade. The, the list goes on and on. He, he walked on water. He walked on water. He, rose, he, he raised three people from the dead in his earthly ministry. You know what the thing was that silenced his disciples? When he stilled the waves. When he, when he put to end a storm. And they said, even, the, even the, the storms yield to this man. Yet, as incredible as all those things are, he, he raised himself from the dead. That's a transcendent power. Paul's desire is to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. I believe Paul wants to know the power of the resurrection as intimately as he knows the person who possesses that power. He wants to know the power as intimately as he knows the person who possesses it. Again, I don't think Paul wants to know about the power of the resurrection. I believe Paul wants to know it such that it transforms his life as knowing Jesus has transformed his life. I believe Paul wants to live in light of the resurrection as Jesus, because he is resurrected. He wants to live as Jesus lives in the light of that resurrection. Ask yourself this. What can thwart a man whose life cannot be taken and shall live for eternity? What can thwart a man whose life cannot be taken and shall live for eternity? Is there anything that can condition that kind of man? Is there anything that can stop that kind of man, a man who possesses that kind of power, whose life cannot be taken and shall live for eternity? Brethren, isn't that what you possess? If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, don't you possess eternal life? Indeed, you do. And Paul believes in this very chapter that he hasn't achieved the very thing that he desires. He writes, verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because, Jesus, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. How shall we obtain these things? How shall we obtain 
the power of the resurrection. Again, it's unlimited power because it resides in the person of God, God the Son. Paul presses on toward the mark of the high calling of God, and there is a day when Paul will know the power of the resurrection in its fullness. There will be a day when Paul's dead body will rise from the dust of the earth and be reunited with his redeemed soul. Yet in the meantime, the power of the resurrection must convert those souls that one day will enjoy the resurrection of the body. And that's what Jesus Christ is doing. He's building a kingdom. And he has made us part of that building process. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Think what way? That I might know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's the way we are to think. It's the already and not yet aspect of our faith and our salvation. We have already attained the resurrection of the dead in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we abide in him, he abides in us. There's a sense in which we already live in the power of the resurrection. I'll speak to that in just a moment. But we have not yet experienced it actually in its fullness, have we? We haven't even died yet, let alone be raised from the dead. That day will come. But just because we've not yet experienced it in its fullness does not mean that we don't possess it. The possession is not based on our ability to sense it with our five senses. Our possession is based on the promises of God. Verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is from Romans chapter 8. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit of himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together with him. Brethren, our inheritance is fixed in heaven. It is fixed there. It exists there. We are, yes, we are the sons of God and therefore joint heirs with Jesus Christ. It is he who has overcome sin and death with his fullness in the resurrection. Darkness has turned to light. Sin and death are vanquished. And we are to know the power of that resurrection as we are to know the one who raised himself from the dead. Do you know Jesus Christ? Not just know of him. Not fear and tremble like the the demons do. But do you know him as your Savior, as your Lord, as your joint heir, as the Redeemer of your soul, as the one who has paid the ransom that you might live eternally, the one who rose from the dead? Do you know that? Is that what you possess? 
And if so, do you live in light of the resurrection? Do you live as a person who does not care about death in the grave? That you'll pass through that as though it didn't even exist because God will redeem you, soul and then body. Does that make a difference in your life? Do you live according to that knowledge? Do you live as though nothing else matters? That the kingdom of God, I will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'll trust everything else to God. That's where I'm putting my focus. Now, does that mean everybody has to become a pastor? Heavens, no, please don't do that. (laughs) Or a missionary. All of us are missionaries in some respect, aren't we? We have family members, we have neighbors, we have co-workers. We don't have to go to a foreign field to be a missionary, to share our faith. But do we share the faith that God's given us? Do we live in light of the resurrection, trusting that when we share that faith and share the scriptures with that neighbor, with that family member, with that friend, that the, the word of God will not return void? It will have the desired effect. That is the building of the kingdom of God. Do we live like that? What about the things you do with your hands? Do you, some of us play the piano very well. Others of us don't. One day I'm going to learn to play the piano. I'm going to have thousands of years to learn to do that. And the guitar. And the French horn, which I've always wanted to play. English horn, I like that one too. What about painting? My wife's taken up painting. She's getting better and better. One day I'll take it up too. Do we live in light of the resurrection? What we do here is a start. But we have eternity to do it. Do we live in light of the resurrection? Or do we have this truncated view of what our lives are like? Uh, Three score and ten and then it's over. Well... Even Hank Maisel's past that, as they celebrated this week. Do we live in light of the resurrection? Do we, do we invest not just in ourselves, but in others, encouraging them in the faith, particularly when their faith is weak? And we come alongside them and say, this, there's reasons for us to be discouraged, but there are greater reasons for us to be encouraged in light of the resurrection. Even death can't stop us. We're the army of the living God. Do we live that way? Do we live in light of the resurrection? There are those here likely who have never put their trust in Christ. Paul talks about that, that, you, that what is more important to you is earthly things. If that describes you, uh, before you leave this day, I want you to come see me and talk with me. I want to talk to you about the light of the resurrection. But for those of us who know the Savior, I commend to you Paul's words from Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God on high. 
How can he sit at the right hand of the throne of God on high? Having endured the cross and died. Because he's resurrected. And we shall be resurrected. For we shall see him as he is. The scripture say. Be comforted, brethren. The power and might of our Savior resides with us. We have nothing to fear. The liberty that we have in our salvation far exceeds anything men could do to us. Live in light of the resurrection. Let us pray together.